After a long and bitter legal dispute, the Defense Department has opted to cancel its signature cloud computing contract. The Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure deal, known as JEDI, had been awarded to Microsoft and protested by Amazon. Now the whole project will be replaced. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has the latest. Jared, tell us exactly what they decided and why they decided it now. They decided to completely cancel the JEDI contract after its initial inception all the way back in September of 2017. It has taken a long road to get to this point, but DoD finally decided that the JEDI cloud, as conceived all the way back then, no longer meets its needs and that they really need to go down the multi-vendor, multi-award approach that, if you'll recall, a lot of people were urging them to pursue all the way back when the RFP came out a year later in 2018. They've decided to pursue that approach with something called the Joint Warfighter Cloud Capability, or JWCC, which will be similar to JEDI in some respects, except that both Amazon and Microsoft, at a minimum, will be allowed to bid. This will be sort of by invitation only. They're going to make direct awards to most likely Amazon and Microsoft, although neither of them are technically guaranteed any work. DoD does expect to make awards to both of those companies. They're also leaving the door open, Tom, to the possibility that other large cloud computing providers could get into the mix under this new award as well. So John Sherman, the acting DoD CIO, is personally reaching out to IBM, to Oracle, and to Google, uh, to top executives, all, all three of those companies, to start to probe whether it makes sense to do some additional market research to see if they might be able to get on this JWCC contract as well. But as of now, it's looking like just task orders uh, and spots on this new IDIQ contract to Amazon and to Microsoft. I was going to ask, if it's an IDIQ with multiple vendors, they don't need to do a whole new solicitation and bid evaluation? Can they convert what they had done when they selected only Microsoft to somehow include Amazon now also? No, this will be an entirely new procurement. So Jedi, as we know it, is essentially dead. They are going to terminate the award to Microsoft that they had made. It's going to be a termination for convenience, and they'll have to do some negotiations with Microsoft to figure out exactly what they need to do to make Microsoft whole for all the work and expense that they've put into getting Jedi ready to go. Of course, you'll recall that contract has been under a court-ordered stay for quite a while now, so not a lot of really no cloud capabilities have been delivered to warfighters, but Microsoft obviously has incurred some expenses. But yeah, JWCC will be an entirely new contract, a somewhat accelerated approach because, again, these are direct awards over up to five years to like I said, at least these two companies. The the schedule for this right now is looking like they'll have a full solicitation for JWCC out in mid-October, and then they would expect an award, Sherman says, sometime between April and June of next year. So even hitting the reset button really does not really does not accelerate things a whole lot more than they, they might have seen, honestly, if they had stuck with the with the Jedi approach in court, presuming they were able to win that litigation. But as, as Sherman told us yesterday, they just didn't feel that the single award approach was was going to work for DOD anymore, didn't meet its needs. And he made sort of a startling admission, I thought, which was that probably stopped making sense about a year ago and maybe more. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. So in a sense, though, they sidestepped some of the issues surrounding the whole protest in the first place that it was politically tainted and so on, and simply are just starting a whole new game, in other words. 
Yeah, and unfortunately, I think we'll never know the exact reasons why DOD completely backed out of this, whether there were some litigation concerns. We do know the department said all the way back in February that if Amazon's lawsuit, all of the counts in the lawsuit stayed intact, they would have to go through even more protracted litigation rather than, than this than this bid, pro, bid, uh, bid protest has already been in, because one of Amazon's claims is, as, as you alluded to, improper political influence on the part of the Trump administration. Amazon has been asking and still, as of last Friday, still was asking for things like depositions from former Trump administration officials in those uh, filings last week. They had accused DOD of continuing to withhold evidence in the case, including documentation that they think would prove political influence and anti-Amazon bias. So there were a lot of things wrapped up in this litigation that, in addition to Jedi no longer making sense for the department, I think the department is probably very happy to put behind it. Got it. All right. So they're a year then from any sort of award, let alone people starting. It's also interesting, too, that, as you mentioned, they're going to invite Oracle, which was one of the earliest protesters of Jedi way back when, and they were rebuffed several times in court. Yeah, invite is probably a little bit too strong a word. They are in what's called a market research phase to decide whether it would be appropriate to invite Oracle and Amazon and Google potentially um, to, to get direct awards under this contract. And again, they would be direct awards, so it's it's not exactly the sort of uh, solicitation and proposal process that you would see in a full and open procurement. Um, the companies then would, would compete at the task order level, however many end up on this vehicle. But we should also emphasize that DOD is now characterizing this JWCC acquisition It's sort of a bridge capability. Unlike Jedi, it's not going to go on 10 years, even though it will probably still be worth several billion dollars. They're they're only expecting it to run really – the the maximum would be five years. But Sherman says by around 2025, they hope to be at a point where they can do another full and open competition with potentially many more vendors on a a more long-term contract that would kind of guide DOD's long-term approach to enterprise cloud. But JWCC, in some ways, like I just alluded to, less ambitious than Jedi was. And I guess in some ways this also acknowledges the fact that many of the armed services have been pursuing their own cloud strategies, not waiting around for Jedi. Yes, that's absolutely true. There are enterprise cloud activities underway in all three military departments, and that's something we didn't get a chance to ask Sherman about during the sort of brief press call that we had with him yesterday. I did ask him, you know, why go through all this trouble for, go go through another acquisition process to buy Amazon and, uh, and, and Microsoft services that you can already buy today off of existing contract vehicles. And he says, yes, we can buy cloud services, but they're not structured in a way that JWCC would give us, which is what he calls an enterprise end-to-end headquarters all the way to the tactical edge integrated cloud capability that they're expecting to get from these two large vendors. And and, and that's the reason to do a JWCC contract. They think that they're going to need something like that to enable things like joint all-domain command and control and this new initiative that they're called ADA that they're working on to integrate data and AI all across the department. And did you get the sense from what they were saying that this started at the top? I mean, did Secretary Lloyd Austin say, guys, put a fork in it and start over? It's entirely possible. We, we haven't seen 
any evidence uh, up to this point as to where the decision making exactly was. We've not heard anything from Austin on this point. We certainly know the deputy secretary has been involved in some of the decision making here. But so far, we've really only heard from the CIO level in these very early days. And have we heard anything yet from either of the major vendors involved, Microsoft or Amazon? Microsoft says they, they you know, they, they're completely sympathetic to the department's desire to get out from under this litigation and, and, and move forward. And they're fairly confident, they say, in their ability to earn work under this new contracting construct. Have not seen a statement as of now from Amazon, but one would expect that they are quite happy that they're going to be able to to, to be, a, be a part of this contract. As I said, not a guarantee that both companies will get work, but it's about as close as you can get to a guarantee. Interesting. This occurs as Andy Jassy, who was the AWS leader for Jeff Bezos, is moving up to run all of Amazon right now. So in some sense, it's kind of a vindication of his protest strategy. Yes, perhaps. But uh, yeah, of of course, Amazon Web Services has always been one of the most profitable parts of the company. So you could you could certainly understand why you would want to elevate someone like that who's led uh, such a key part of the business. All right. Well, I guess Jedi will rest in peace. Federal News Network's Jared Serbo. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. Check out his ongoing coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a B.S. from the University of South Carolina and an M.P.A. from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, And the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness Uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be, uh, uh, to to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? 
you know, there have been so many moments. And I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have uh, my willingness to to fight for change, and that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the 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 massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life, and and it, it conjured up again these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy, and now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them of, of what I could. It's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life, and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute I think is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned 
and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, um, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.